I'm going to pass over to Luke right now. He's going to lead us um, in our next instalment of the preaching series. Brilliant. So over to you. Thank you, Rachel. We are, as uh, some of you will be aware, as a church family, we've been um, preaching through the letter to the Ephesians. And we are um, really going at quite a pace now. We are at the second half of chapter five. And um, so soon it will be over. It's only six chapters uh, in Ephesians. But um, I personally, um, as I've prepared, but also as I've um, really uh, loved hearing the word of God preached over the weeks, I've been so built up by the word of God through this wonderful letter. Uh, And so I pray that that's uh, what we feel as well this morning. So my name's Luke. I'm one of the pastors here at Life Church. If this is your first week or one of your first weeks, um, I hope you're particularly feeling welcome this morning. And we're so pleased that you're with us. Um, Last week, I, I was looking with us together as a church family at the start of Ephesians 5, and we looked at what it means to live a life of love, a life which is lived for others, but ultimately for the worship and the glory of our God. And we looked specifically on how our view of God affects how we live and actually how the lies we can so quickly absorb actually is often the root of our sin because we stop trusting that God is who he says he is. And we particularly focused on sexual sin last week because that's what the passage was focusing on. But this morning, Paul has moved on in his letter, or rather, he's actually moved back because there's a theme through the letter of the Ephesians, a theme of unity, which comes up again and again and again. God has brought those who are far off to be brought near. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. Jew and Gentile were brought together in one body in Christ. And now we have a call to live lives of love, of forgiveness, of patience, of relationship together, being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. These are themes that run the whole way through Ephesians. And as we think about unity, Daniel really helpfully a few weeks ago, Daniel Goodman was with us visiting uh, and he helped us think about division is the enemy of unity, but unity with diversity is a beautiful thing that God gives. Actually, unity with diversity displays the manifold wisdom of God. That's what Ephesians 3.10 shows us. And today picks up on that theme again, unity with diversity and particularly with a focus on marriage, where we'll see that God's intention for Christian marriage is to hold these two truths together, unity with diversity. And through these very means, the Christian marriage can begin to be a little glimpse into Christ and his church, a mini portrait of the wonderful work of the gospel. Because today's passage is ultimately not about marriage. It's about Jesus, the good husband who loves his church. That's what we'll see today. So let's read the word of God together. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Uh, We're in Ephesians 5 and we're reading from uh, verse 18. And it says this, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make melody from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will be one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let's pray. Father, as we um, open this passage this morning, as we hear you speak to us, we pray that you would show us ultimately how wonderful Christ is. As you speak into our lives and have wonderful things that you want to show us, we pray ultimately you would open our eyes to see Christ is the good husband of the church. Amen. Amen. So before we dive in um, to our passage, um, which focuses on marriage, um, Paul sets the scene from verse 18 onwards. Let's read that bit uh, again from verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Oh, sorry, I, I skipped a sentence. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submit to one another, out of reverence for Christ. As we've seen time and again, following Jesus isn't just about saying no to our old life. It's saying yes to all God has for us. And it's saying yes to what Jesus has won for us in the power of the Spirit and for the sake of Jesus. Paul takes getting drunk as an example here to explain this to us. Don't get drunk. This isn't the way you are to live anymore. Why? Because there's something so much better, being filled with the Spirit. I think Paul quite deliberately compares being drunk with being filled with the Spirit. Because just like those who are drunk have to keep drinking to stay drunk, similarly, the people of the Spirit have to be constantly filled with the Spirit. And as being tipsy will sometimes cause us to slur our words, actually know quite the opposite with the Spirit. With the Spirit, he gives us songs to sing to one another for our building up. And intoxication, with intoxication, we drop our guard. We say whatever comes out and we often hurt or are rude to others, but not so with the Spirit. The people of the Spirit are always giving thanks. And when it comes to being inebriated, we're often unaware of those around us, the effects that we have on people because of our behaviour. But the people of the Spirit live lives of submission to one another out of reverence for Christ. As believers, we live lives empowered by the Spirit, don't we? We don't just get given commands and we think, what do we do with them? No, we're empowered by the Spirit and we do it out of reverence to Christ. 
worship, awe, and wonder at our great Lord. And as we turn to the next section of our passage, as we turn to think about marriage, I do want to start by acknowledging that for some of us in the room today, this will be a particularly difficult subject. Whether because of our history of hurt, whether because of circumstances we're currently in, or whether because of experiencing biblical teaching or so-called biblical teaching on passages which have actually been used unwisely or even damagingly, there'll be some of us in the room who will be particularly sensitive to what we look at this morning. But I really do believe at its heart, this passage is good news to each and every one of us. Women and men, single, divorced, married or widowed, because when we see that Christ is the good husband of the church and that he is coming for his precious bride, we will realise there is good news for us to hear. Let's continue walking through our passage and um, the, the, word should, the, the verses should come up on the screens. But let's read from verse 22 onwards. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Headship and submission. Headship and submission in marriage. Two words, when misunderstood and misused, can cause unspeakable damage to marriages and individuals. But I believe, when understood properly, used appropriately, and with a heart of humility, can not only help transform Christian marriage, but can wonderfully show us a little portrait of how Christ loves the church. When used properly, I think it can show the world a little picture of the gospel. Because even as Christians, we so quickly settle into thinking that marriage and relationships is about me. Who's my soulmate? Who am I looking for? Who completes me? But you might think, no, 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 we're good, we're good churchgoers. We know marriage isn't about me. Marriage is about us. It's about the married couple. But you know what? It's not. <laughs> God did not design marriage to be about two people. I think about um, the wonderful traditional marriage vows. Uh, Beth and I got married in an Anglican church and uh, they have a really wonderful way with words sometimes. Uh, so let me read you a little bit of the traditional marriage vows or the traditional marriage service, sorry. It says this, marriage is a way of life made holy by God and blessed by the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ with those celebrating a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Marriage is a sign of unity and loyalty which, should, which all should uphold and honour. And this is the good bit. It enriches society and strengthens community. Marriage is much more than just one husband and one wife. Marriage has always been designed to be outward looking, to be outward focused. Marriage is not about finding the person who you're going to close the door to the world with and binge Netflix. It's something much more beautiful about, uh, than that. It's something to bless children to bless our wider family, to bless our neighbours, our community and our church. Marriage is always meant to point outwards. And our passage shows us that actually there is a profound way that right at its heart, marriage was always meant to be, which is a pointer not just out to others, but to Christ. That's what we see in our passage today. When two Christians come together in marriage, they have an opportunity to perform a, a sort of mini-drama which points the world to Christ and his love for the church. 
Christian marriage should be a shining light in the world of darkness. It's one way of many, there are many ways, but it is one wonderful way that we show the world a glimpse of the gospel. And so if marriage is a mini portrait of Christ in the church, to understand concepts like headship and submission that are in our passage today, we have to go to Jesus, don't we? How is he head of the church? How does he treat his bride? We must go to him if we are to properly, truly understand what this passage says about Christian marriage. And as a quick caveat, uh, this morning isn't a full biblical overview of marriage, okay? It's a sermon on Ephesians 5. Uh, And so we'll be talking a fair bit about headship and submission. I think that's important um, because it's in the passage. But it's not the only dynamic that goes on in marriage. Definitely not. On the first page of the Bible, we see the most foundational, um, the most foundational dynamic which goes on in marriage. Genesis 1.27 says this, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Right at the beginning, the equality and dignity in value and inheritance of man and woman, let alone husband and wife, this is just male and female, the sexes, is right there at the heart of what it means to be in the image of God. That is a foundational value in marriage. There is an equality in value and dignity. Or the value of uh, interdependence. On page two of the Bible, Genesis 2, we're told that it wasn't good for man to be alone, and so God created woman. And so this is seen in all of community, that we need one another, interdependence. And in marriage, when we know that we need one another to bring out all that marriage is meant to be, that is a beautiful foundation to build a marriage on, interdependence. Or what about children, raising children? This is a beautiful biblical part of marriage, which sadly is actually sidelined in our society as a secondary thing. And so we have all these wonderful foundations and it's actually only when we have a foundation of equality and value, of a need for one another, interdependence, that we have healthy soil to read a passage like this one. You might have almost uh, also noticed that um, I'm using the phrase Christian marriage most of the time. Again, that's because I believe this passage in Ephesians 5 is predominantly talking about two people who love and follow Jesus coming together in marriage. Now, there are other really important parts of the Bible which speak about when um, one partner in the marriage doesn't follow Jesus. I think of 1 Corinthians 7 or 1 Peter 3. But this morning's passage focuses on two people who want to follow Jesus living together in marriage. So that will be our focus as well today. But whether we're married or not, happily or unhappily, it will be good news as we see Christ, the good husband. Okay. As said before, if we want to understand these concepts properly, we've got to go to Jesus, don't we? We have to go to Jesus. Verse 23 of our passage says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So we have to go to Christ to understand what it looks like for a Christian marriage. Now, did you know, I wonder whether the hawk-eyed among you will have noticed this, that headship is mentioned in Ephesians multiple times before we get to chapter five. It's actually mentioned two times very clearly in English. I I think it is actually referred to more. Um, But we're going to go to two of those places this morning because I think they're really, really important. And that's important to know because Paul doesn't just bring out words in Ephesians 5 and expect us to understand them. 
But he gives wonderful context in the rest of the passage about Christ's headship to let us understand it. And so let's go to Ephesians 1 together, because there we will see a very interesting dynamic about how Christ deals with the church. Ephesians 1 verse 20 onwards says this. Paul's in the middle of a prayer. So Paul is praying that the church will know God's power, which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There's two really important dynamics that are going on in this passage, okay? Two really important and quite different dynamics. Christ is the conquering king of all spiritual authority. That's what these verses tell us. That Christ, in the resurrection, God raised him to be above every spiritual authority and power. The enemy, the, the, the power of darkness were crushed under his feet. His name is above every name. There is no power now which compares to Christ Jesus. And so when we come to these verses, we see that Christ is the conquering king. And him being head over all things means his enemies are crushed under his feet. It says they're made his footstool. And that's really important to understand that Christ, the conquering king, when it comes to his enemies... I'll move on in a second. But when it comes to his enemies, they are crushed under his feet as the conquering king. The heavenly realms are put in submission to Christ as he is the great Lord over them. But how does he speak about the church in the very same passage? How does he speak about the church? It says, God placed all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church for the church. Christ, the great conquering king, is given for us. More than that, he's joined to us as his body. He cares for and nourishes and nurtures us, his church. As a church, we are not a humiliated, broken, defeated enemy crushed under his feet. We are the precious, treasured people of God joined to him, his body. Do you see the two dynamics at play in Ephesians 1 are very different. Christ's enemies are put under him, but Christ's church is joined to him. His very body, a wonderful, tender, nurturing uh, stance that Christ has towards us, his church. And it is Christ's relationship with the church that Christian marriage is meant to be a reflection of. Not with his enemies, but Christ and the church that Ephesians 5 says Christian marriage is built on. You see, Christ's headship of the church is not overbearing or cruel. It's not out, he's not out there to use the church for his own devices just to get what he wants and then discard us. Christ is not arrogant or brutish. He does not crush us under his feet. And yet many people have experienced things at the hands of partners who have been and done all those things and worse. Everything that Christ isn't, some of us have experienced. And I know that there are those here today all too often women, who have been mistreated by people who were meant to love them, who were meant to be partners with them. But this is not what we experience with Christ. You see, Christ is the good husband. He does not take advantage. He does not use us. 
He is not out for himself, but he pours out himself for us, sacrificially in love. And he doesn't crush us under his feet. No, actually Ephesians 2, that wonderful verse says, we are raised up with Christ and seated with him. Not crushed down by him, but raised up with him to be in security, eternal security with him. Church, submission to Christ is safe. Submission to Christ is good. It's important, I do say, if you're in a situation, whether in family or um, romantic relationship or anything else, where you do feel unsafe for whatever reason, please don't stay in the dark about that. Whether you come and speak to um, Carol Barber or Paul Graham, who are the two people in the church who are our safeguarding leads, whether um, you come to uh, someone like me who can point you to a charity which could help you, or whether you're in danger and you need to call the police, please, if you are in a position where you do not feel safe, please make sure you do something about that. We really want to care for you well in that. And so as we continue to see what it means for Christ to be head of the church, let's go back to our main passage. Because Christ so wonderfully joins himself to the church. And as we see in Ephesians 5, the way that his love is characterized is sacrificial. Ephesians 5, 25 says this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Christ, as the head of the church, gives himself up for us. He washes us clean. He makes us holy and blameless. And in Christian marriage, we're told in verse 23, husbands, uh, for the husband is the head of the wife. We are meant to reflect him. But do you notice when it says husband is the head of the wife, it then Paul doesn't go on to say, be head. He doesn't say ruler's head. He doesn't say use your wives. He says, love your wives. The verb is love. The command is love. And I find Paul's analogy actually really helpful, probably because it's so simple. He says, love your wives, husbands, as your own bodies. Now, I don't know about you. When I'm hungry, I go to the fridge. When I'm thirsty, I pop the kettle on. When I was a student, I learned after a few weeks that living off bourbon biscuits wasn't good for me, so I started going to the shop regularly. In general, we're quite good at knowing our needs and caring for them. It's quite a simple picture. Husbands, we must grow in our instincts to know what our wives' needs are as if they were our own. That's what Paul encourages and commands us here. It doesn't say ignore your own needs. It doesn't say that. But it does say love your wives as your own body. You must be as attentive and aware of their needs as you are of your own. So husbands, when we get to the end of a long day, do we make sure we have the emotional energy to ask our wives how she is? Husbands, do we regularly sit down together as a couple and think about how we approach the mundane things of life, the school run, the finances, the housework, and do we decide together in ways that honour and love our wives, that make sure they're heard and not just presumed upon? 
And most importantly, husbands, do we pray for our wives? Do we lead them and encourage them in ways that help them see Jesus? Is that a priority on our hearts? I'll be honest with you. A few months back, I started to notice that when Beth and I would argue, and I know it's a relief to some of you to know that we do argue occasionally, I noticed that it would be Beth who would frequently de-escalate. Now, is that a good thing? My goodness, yes. What a wonderful wife I have. But if I'm honest with you, I was lazy in my heart. I was quite content that Beth would kind of sort out the issues and calm me down and we would move on. In my heart, I was quite happy for my needs to be met and not care. I wonder whether it would help her for me to see if I can meet her needs. Husbands, as heads, we're given a responsibility and command from the Lord to sacrificially love our wives. Do we take that seriously? I want to pick up a phrase in verse 29. It says this, verse 29 of our chapter. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. Feed and care. In the ESV, it says, nourish and cherish. I think this is another really important thing to draw upon. And another thing about Christ's headship, the feeding and nourishing of the church that we can look at to understand what it means to have Christian marriages that reflect who he is. So let's go together to Ephesians 4, verse 15 and 16. It says this, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. For him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You see, Christ being head of the church does not stifle the body. It doesn't hog the attention. It doesn't seek its own needs first. Christ being head of the body creates a context where the church flourishes. I love that phrase, each does its part. That's what it means to be church, isn't it? where Christ draws us together in him so each one of us brings our gifting and contribution. And headship in marriage is meant to be a mini version of this, a place where the whole family is released and uh, released to grow into all that God has made them to be. Each member of the family flourishing in the Lord. And so for those of you who are in Christian marriage, what are the gifts that God has given to you both? What are the things that bring, brings your heart to life, which help build up others in and out of the family and help um, yeah, show others Jesus? What are those gifts he's given to both of you to bring? And husbands, through prayer, through conversation, and through just making sure it's at the front of our minds, it is our privilege and opportunity and role to create an environment where the family can grow where the family can be all that it was made to be in the Lord. But it doesn't get anyone else off the hook because each part must do this work. Each part has a wonderful contribution to make. And so wives, you have the privilege, opportunity in your families to play your part because it is only when each one of us is all that God made us to be that we reflect him in his fullness. With that in mind, I do think it's really um, important to say that it's unhelpful to fall into the traps of stereotypes of our culture, okay? We, we hear the stereotypes, but it's really important we weigh them up. What about them are good? And what about them are just 
Well, they're not good. They're not helpful. Because sometimes we can absorb cultural norms as biblical wisdom. It's important to not say, I don't like that, and so I'm going to kick it out. But we should say, is that healthy or unhealthy as I weigh it against scripture? The man does the finances, but what if the wife is better at Excel? The wife does the cooking, but what if the husband has the time or the capacity to do the cooking? I believe headship in marriage is much less about specifics and much more about a calling from and responsibility before God as husbands to sacrificially love our wives, to be attentive to their needs and to create a space that sees them flourish in all God has made them to be. I think it's much often less about specifics and more often about what God is doing uniquely in us as couples. And so we've looked at the idea of headship. We've looked at Christ's headship and how that is wonderful. He joins the church to himself in love. He sacrificially lays down his life and he creates a context where everyone flourishes. But let's explore what this passage says submission does and doesn't mean because that is equally as important. And I want to point out two things that we could just skip over in this passage, but I think are actually really helpful in unpicking some nuance of what it's meant to look like. The first is this. Paul speaks to wives directly. That's really important to notice. Because in a culture where a teacher like Paul could have been presumed to speak to a husband or to a father to go through them to a woman, here Paul speaks directly to wives. Why? Because submission in marriage is done not out of legalistic obligation and it is definitely not done out of the coercion of a husband, but as a willing choice, out of reverence to Christ. As verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. You see, each one of us, married, unmarried, husbands, wives, whatever, living lives of obedience to God is a choice. A choice that God wants us to make willingly from a heart response of worship, of knowing the grace of God in Christ in our lives out of trust and love and uh, and joy in him. And so Paul is not telling husbands, force your wives to submit. Let me just be clear that I don't think there is a hint of that in here. And he's not telling wives, you know, is this or you're in big trouble? No, like all of the instructions from chapter four onwards, he says, don't live your old way, but there is such a beautiful, better way you can live. He says, wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. Remember that beautiful difference in Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, there is a picture of forced submission. The enemies of Christ were crushed under his feet. But there was also a picture of willing submission a wonderful, gentle and tender picture where the church loves to submit to Christ because he is their saviour and a beautiful, beautiful husband to them. There are two very, very different things. Forced submission and willing submission are very, very different things. And Paul calls us, calls wives in Christian marriage to submit out of reverence to Christ. But secondly, Paul uses the words submit and respect, not obey. Now, there's similar words, but in verse 22 and 24, he says, submit to your husbands. In verse 33, he says, respect your husbands. But when he talks to children and their parents, he says, children, obey. 
When he speaks to servants and their masters, he says, servants, obey. And why is this subtlety important to Hinta? Because again, we see submission is not meant to be a mindless, cold obedience out of a, a, either a coercion or a legalistic heart. Because I believe that at its heart, submission is, is simply this, a recognition and respect of the God-given role that a Christian husband has to be head in marriage. A loving and joyful acknowledgement that your husband has a particular responsibility before God for the family. And you as wives have opportunity, beautiful opportunity to support him in that, to pray for him in that, to help him in that, not undermine, but encourage him in that. Remember that principle of mutual dependence. This is not one person's role for the other to do nothing but a beautiful thing when working together. Unity with diversity that we reflect Christ. Submission must not be forced and it must not be coerced. That is not how Christ loves the church. But it is a willing, joyful choice in the context of a loving relationship. And in that context, headship and submission in marriage can become the mini portrait of Christ and the church that it was ultimately designed for. We're starting to come to the end now, but I, I wanted to quickly um, touch on uh, how this passage does and doesn't talk to sex, because I think that can be really unhelpfully applied sometimes. And because sex is an important part of a healthy marriage, but it can often be misused if misunderstood. And sometimes the idea of submission in marriage can really unhelpfully be applied. To, to sex in marriage. I think the Bible is actually very, very clear. It's actually quite a simple thing. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4 says this. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Perfectly mutual. Sexual union must be mutual, sacrificial, other-centered. So if you're married... Make sure you talk about sex together. Make sure you understand each other, that you think of the other first, that you reassess expectations in different seasons of life and constantly remind yourselves to be selfless and sacrificial to the other as you approach it. I just wanted to caveat that quickly and be clear because I think that can often be one place that that's really unhelpfully applied to the idea of submission and taken out of context. So as we end, I just want to look at a couple of things, um, especially um, in Christian marriage, but also about who Christ is. Paul addresses wives, but he also addresses husbands. Why? It takes two to tango, doesn't it? It needs both of us. If you're in a Christian marriage, it takes both people to do it. Husbands, don't make it difficult for your wife to submit to you. Love them sacrificially. Be attentive to their needs as well as your own and create a context where they flourish and all that God has made them to be. And in that context, you make it possible, even desirable, for your wife to submit to you, to trust you with the responsibility that God has given you to care for your family before God. And wives, submit to your husbands. Seek to support, love and build them up as he's calling, as he has put a calling and responsibility before God on him you have the wonderful privilege to encourage him. Not as the finished article, my goodness, no. Not as the perfect person, but as the one who God is doing a work in and you get to be part of that. But it begs the question, what if my spouse is not doing their part? What if 
the two aren't tangoing? What if only one of us is really wanting to invest in our marriage or is walking with Jesus still? And I'll be honest, that's an incredibly difficult question. Because for our marriage to be the beautiful picture of Christ in the church, it takes both of us. This is a passage about Christian marriage. Two people who love Jesus and are following him, coming together to look as a little picture of Christ in the church. And so uh, there's not time to go into full answers on that, but I would say this. Don't walk alone in this. Marriage is temporary. The church is eternal. God has given us one another to be family together, which is much bigger than nuclear family. Praise God for nuclear family. But it's much, much bigger than that. So if you're in a situation for whatever reason where marriage is difficult, make sure you have those people, Christians around you, who you can walk with. Pray. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your situation because actually God is not far. He is near. Have the good people supporting you, giving you wisdom, but come before God in prayer. Why? Because finally, all these things we do out of a heart of reverence to Christ. The point of submitting to one another isn't for the other person's sake. It's out of reverence to Christ. We live a life of love for one another, not ultimately for one another, but for the glory of the one who laid down his life for us. But actually, whether you're in a great marriage or whether you've got a lot to work on, whether um, you would never even consider marriage or whether you think actually that time is not for now, for all of us, we're not meant to walk the journey alone. Intimacy is a wonderful thing given in marriage, but it's not exclusively for marriage. Intimacy is a wonderful thing, which our society says has to be sexualized, but it's not. That's one expression of intimacy, and that's good for marriage. But intimacy is the church knowing each other, caring for each other, loving each other. Let us walk together in this. So finally, I promise I'll be quiet in a second. Ephesians 5, 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound portrait, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This morning, we've talked about a profound mystery. Husband and wife joined together in marriage, two people becoming one, loving and caring for one another, equal in dignity and value, united with diverse roles that God has given for their good and to point to him. But that isn't the profound mystery. The profound mystery is that it's pointing to something more, Christ and the church. Because Christ is intimately lovingly, sacrificially, selflessly and permanently one with his church, joined to us as the true husband. And so whether we are married, whether we are desiring marriage or none of the above, Christ is the great husband who loves us like no other. And for those of us who are married, we have the opportunity in Christian marriage to be a tiny little portrait of how wonderful the gospel is. Amen.